The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I like the story from the Apali Canon where after the Buddha's awakening under the Bodhi tree, he spent uh, many days, and one of the things he did, I think 40-some days, he was just sort of hung out in that area. He just went back and forth over this insight on dependent co-arising. Just seeing, tracking over and over again how our experience, our subjective experience as a human being arises. It's talked about in different ways in, in terms of lifetime after lifetime. But it's more useful for us to think about it in terms of moment by moment. You know, like even today, even maybe in your set, this 30 minute sit or 25 minute sit after the chanting, you know, how many marks, or how many realities did we experience in that 25 minutes? A lot of different realities. We're warm, lasted, briefly, not, you know, and then. That reality ceased, you know, a little mini-drama, a little panic, a little, I got this, I'm doing good, you know? And then another mark, another reality, another reality, another reality, or die. So this is, you know, it's talked metaphorically in different of the different suttas, different of the discourses, about the three watches of the night, because that particular night under the Bodhi tree, you know, as a legend, as a story, you know, there, the insight, the deepening of understanding to the path of natural development. And we could say that the first insight, right, and we can understand this intellectually, even if, you know, we're not necessarily going to completely wake up like the Buddha, but that first watch of the night, the first third of the night, in observing one moment arising and then passing another moment of mind arising and then passing another moment arising and passing. And so it takes a real stable present moment awareness, samadhi, to see the subtlety. We get the sense, right? Our equivalent with the more ordinary, less developed concentration, less developed samadhi, is that everything's always in motion. It never stops moving. Can you notice that about this moment or the flow of moments right now? Is there anything in your experience at all that's static or set in any way? Our ideas, our conceptualizations, create the appearance that things are Static. But when we're, when the samadhi, when the balance of present moment awareness is strong, we really see that flow, that changing nature. Things are coming and going. So we shouldn't be put off by the sort of metaphorical nature they talk about it in the tradition. You know, the Buddha saw one lifetime, two lifetimes, three lifetimes, four lifetimes. 
infinite numbers of births and deaths. Because we can, basically that's like really seeing that whoever we are, whatever our experience is, it doesn't last very long. And so even if we're having a horrendous moment, real sadness, real freaking out because of the knee pain and too embarrassed to move and you know, we can get in a little panic attack, especially in a big group when people are all around you and just sitting and you know, the pain is really strong. And it can be like a real hell problem. Anybody feel that today? Yeah. Nobody. Which means 
the mind doesn't feel obliged to add anything because it's a natural process. It's not requiring a personal response. I don't, the moment isn't requiring the mind to construct personal meaning to explain, tell a story about what's happening. So just to go back to the, you know, the, the beautiful story about the Buddha's night under the Bodhi, Bodhi tree and then just 40, 45 days after that deep insight, clarifying what had happened, what he had come to understand, so that he could begin to articulate it first himself and then as a teacher to other people. And this is where, you know, at least as the story goes, where he was figuring out whether he could share this with anybody, and if he were going to try, how would he try to share this with other people? And this is really what has now come down to us as these teachings on dependent co-arising. How it is that the appearance of me as a suffering being, that appearance arises, and how it is, this is the important part, how it is that the appearance that there's a me who's suffering ceases, right? Because in a natural world, which is the Buddha's insight, that it's nature, not self, it's nature, it's not personal, it's always nature, it's never personal, right? It's just uh, happening according to causes and conditions. And yet our subjective experience is like, oh, I'm really suffering here, I'm really hurting here. Right? That happens a lot. For us, presuming for me. Anybody not feeling like <laughs> you personally are suffering? Lots of times, right? Even within one hour, within one day, for sure. You know, very poignant moments, including the joyful moments, wanting it to last is its own particular kind of suffering. Oh, this is so great. How can I hold on to this? How can I make it even better? How can I share this with other people? In a way that hurts. So the first watch of the night, the Buddha saw that everything was in motion, and that motion never stops. That what human existence is, is a river, it's a flow. It isn't a thing. No nouns, only verbs. It's just ongoing process. It's still, it's very personal. But that's a start, right? To see that it's in motion. So this is something we can cultivate this course. You can do this all day long. You don't have to just do this. It will be a little easier in the formal city time where the environment is more settled and quiet. That's going on. But sometimes it's easier just out in the midst of your daily life to sense the ongoingness of your thoughts, the ongoingness of hearing, the ongoingness of sensations being felt, sights being seen, and everything's flowing, everything's moving. And then the second watch of the night, it said that as the Buddha saw the flow, again, it's always traditionally 
talked about in terms of one lifetime after another, like as if you could review the tapes, you know, forward, backwards. But, but remember, we can see it right now, moment by moment. And then the, the Buddha began to refine his understanding. Not only was things, were things flowing on and on and on, one mind moment after another mind moment after another mind moment, but he began to see that how when a hellish situation arose, what conditions, what were the supporting conditions for that, for my subjective experience to be hellish. Now I've taken birth, this moment I've taken birth as a person who doesn't like like pain. Right? Now I've taken birth as somebody who sees himself as an experienced meditator who should know what to do with this like pain and doesn't want to be seen. And then, I mean, I could go through that 25-minute set, and even in hindsight, I could probably name, you know, I bet if I gave me enough time, I could probably name 30 to 50 different specific identities, realities that the knowing mind could recognize even in hindsight, like who I was for a moment, and then I was this for a moment, and I was back to that, something like that again. You know, each little moment of one particular way of relating to whatever else was in play in that moment. And so the Buddha began, because he saw it in the, the, the initial, you know, third of the night, he really got the things, everything was in motion. And then the second third of the night, the second watch of the night, he began to see what attitudes, what ways of relating led to more wholesome, easeful results and which ways of being, ways of relating, ways of understanding led to more hellish experiences, right? So like in the metaphorical sense, you know, being born, reborn, and really unfortunate circumstances, or being reborn in really fortunate circumstances. But again, you know, this is always, the Buddha as a teacher was very pragmatic. He wasn't trying to lay out some sort of metaphysical reality. He was trying to help people <coughs> understand the nature of suffering so they could be free of it. Understand the nature of stress so they could be free, more free, more released. So you could say the second watch of the night, the Buddha was really getting clear about what's skillful and what's unskillful, what way of understanding. And this is like why Buddhism is considered a wisdom path, because what the Buddha came to understand was the most impactful intervention in terms of lived reality is how the mind is understanding. There are ways of understanding or ways of framing that are conducive to very stressful, hellish states. And there are ways of framing, ways of understanding that are conducive to feeling, experiencing, in a released, free, enlivened, non-fragmented way, enlightened way, I might say. 
And then the third watch of the night <coughs> is sort of using that insight to uproot the tendency in the mind to relate in unwise ways. So that's what the Buddha figured out, right? If we do that, then we have the understanding that the Buddha had. So we've got, instead of one night, we've got our eight weeks, now seven. And so what we want to do first in our sets and throughout the day is recognize the flow just from our ordinary subjective reality as a human being, sensitive in these six ways, through the body, the five physical senses, being aware of mental activity, always in motion. Now that's not a hard, the hard part is remembering and notice. Like, so whatever you're, is happening, like now one of the predominant experiences for a lot of you is my voice, or just the experience of hearing, or even or just the meaning the mind is getting from my words, right? But whatever it is you tune into right now, you can notice not so much like the object, but that it's in motion, that it's coming and going, that it's not ending. Right? This is always in motion. Like if you're thinking, that thinking is emotion. If you're feeling sensations, those sensations are emotion. And then the, the second insight is like how you're relating to that motion is impactful. So even if you didn't get pointing out instruction from the Buddha, like you see things as nature, it's going to work out pretty well. If you take things personally, it's going to get tight. Right? So those are our pointing out instructions. But even if we didn't get those pointing out instructions, we'd figure it out if we were mindful, present, with the motion of our heart and mind and body. Because we'd see, we'd start to eventually correlate taking things very personally to a lot of suffering. And having a more spacious, equanimous, naturalistic sense of the body, the mind, the heart would be correlated with that experience of more release, more ease, more clarity, more capacity to see clearly, participate skillfully. And then to the degree we began to distill what's skillful and what's unskillful, in terms of how the mind is understanding, how the mind is training. Because right? we met, like right now, test it out. Like your subjective experience, whatever you're knowing, whatever you're sensitive to, practice seeing that as a natural process. It takes a particular kind of effort. And it's not about having a different experience. This is why it takes a little. You know, it takes a little practice. Because it's not about imposing the impersonal view. It's about seeing, like I said earlier, you know, seeing what appears to be very personal, but understanding it as nature. So when we have a personal reaction, let that be a natural thing. Oh yeah, that's what happens sometimes. I freak out. I think it's personal. 
But why couldn't that be nature? It's just like we see our cat doing all kinds of quirky things. It's relatively easy for us to see that as nature. Yeah, it's just what the cat does sometimes. You know, runs around. You know? Or sleeps. Crawl into the blankets and it's like, oh, crawl up in a ball, I have to support it. And uh, it's just like all those different. And we could, you know, we tend to do this, especially with our pets. We sort of personify the, the creature. It's more useful with our partners and our pets and our society, and in particular ourselves, to see it in terms of naturalistic terms. So yeah, that's how it is sometimes. And then, so that way we're not judging ourselves. So if I catch myself taking something really personally, and body, mind, heart's getting really tight and entangled, and it really hurts, even then, it's not about Stopping it as much as it is using it to learn. Oh yeah, that's how it is sometimes. And when this attitude dominates, this way of framing, where the mind is interpreting everything in very personal terms, that life seems really unbearable. Oh yeah, that's what I've been learning. And then the opposite too. When we're not taking things really personally, not framing in that way, how light it is. It's interesting in longer retreats and something like walking meditation. Some of you know this experience. It's like, you know, you're just walking back, often it's not a room, a space not much longer than this width of this room, or whatever that is, 15 by feet. And, you know, you sit for an hour or so, and then you walk for about the same amount of time, and then you sit, and then you walk. And it can feel like there you are standing and, you know, okay. Oh, okay. And then it isn't long before it's like, oh, <laughs> this is dumb or boring or, you know, I don't want to do it. So it can feel at times like the most painful slog, you know, to just put one foot for the, you know, encourage the awareness to be aware of the lifting and the placing or whatever is predominant in that experience. Right? And it, it really feels like hell sometimes. Like that, you know, and you don't want to be a bad yogi and crawl off to your room to take a nap because you got this idea that you're good. And so being good, you got to do what you're supposed to be doing. And that's also an impressive, taking that thought personally, it's also very impressive that sort of running down. So not only are you doing this sort of boring thing, but you've got all this sort of other stuff going on. And it can get really oppressive, you know, which is, seems, from an outside point of view, like incredibly indulgent that you take off time from work, and travel across the country, go to this retreat property, only walk back and forth in a stupid way <laughs> and feel really oppressed by the experience. <laughs> but there are other moments where it's like the whole thing is happening on its own. The intention to step arises, the foot moves, the intention for the other step arises, the foot moves. There's nobody 
the mind isn't bothering to construct the somebody who has to do it. So there's the activity, the intention to live that plays, the intention to live that plays, and the other, you know, seeing, being known, hearing, being heard, all that's happening. But what's really radical is the absence of anybody having any problem. And so there's that resonant freedom that really characterizes it. Everything is happening on its own, and there's this seemingly infinite space of freedom in moments, right? And it, those moments of freedom leave an impression in the mind. Basically, like if you had to articulate what that impression is, is that I'm pretty sure suffering is optional. Because we've really seen, the mind has seen the contrast, how something in one moment, four moments, can be incredibly oppressive, and in other moments can have the flavor of liberation, the flavor of freedom that's unmistakable. Like one of the qualities of that taste of freedom is, hey, it's always available. This is always available. Help yourself. Okay, Thich Nhat Hanh has a statement like that. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. <laughs> <clears throat> so those were the three watches, you know. And after that awakening, night of awakening, the Buddha spent <clears throat> some of those many days, those forty days or whatever it was, back and forth reflecting on it. Like how it is that a suffering being comes to be getting really clear of the conditional nature. When there's this, this other thing is already is also there. When this isn't there, then that other thing is there. With the arising of this comes the arising of that. Without the arising of this, there's no arising of that. Right? So in, think of that in terms of suffering. You, in a subjective sense, being a suffering being. When there's this, there's a suffering being. When there's not this, whatever that is, that would be interesting, right? There's not a suffering being there. When this is showing up, then soon to follow will be me as a suffering being. Without this arising, the suffering being. So the Buddha, it's a little bit more complex than just a straight linear causality. It's more dynamic than that. And I mentioned last week, this is like it's a relational thing. That the code, you know, the it can the puzzle can be broken. It just needs to be studied in a balanced way. And we have the pointing out instructions from the Buddha. Right? Because the Buddha basically tells us that when wrong view is there, self-view is there, self-centered view, self-drama view is there. Greed, anger, delusion is there, then there will be a suffering being there. And when self-view is not there, when greed, anger, delusion is not present in the mind, then there won't be a suffering being there. So that's that's a very useful thing to reflect on. That's really what we're reflecting on this course, right? And so I set that out, that, that statement. It's really the simple summation of the Buddhist teachings on conditionality. When this exists, this naturally exists. 
three-day revolution is present, active in the mind, then this sense of being a suffering being naturally is present. Due to the rising of greed, anger, delusion, self-view, miserable me arises. When these not helpful qualities of mind, attitudes of mind, understandings are not present, suffering me naturally does not arise. It's not like I'm doing some clever thing, right? It's just that the causes to be a suffering being just aren't there. Due to the quenching, to the dropping, the abandoning of greed, anger, delusion, self, selfish view, the suffering being also ceases. And it really takes the burden, because a lot of times, you know, we get, in a way, a somewhat accurate sense when we're, we've got some mindfulness going in our life, in a sit. We can, you know, somewhat accurately assess, like, oh boy, I'm a really greedy person, or I've got an anger problem, you know, or I have a lot of heaven energy around distraction and denial. Like, I just don't want to know. I don't want to look. <laughs> so we can, like, get how powerful those habits. You know, each of us, it's a little bit different. Some of you would uh, be in this camp of more of an angry type, you know, irritable, grumpy, perhaps hot. Some of you are more greedy types. Some of you are more deluded, distracted, and denial types, right? So in Buddhist psychology, we tend to See, you know, it's just kind of good to get a sense of our predominant way of creating help for ourselves is, you know, mostly by being aversive or mostly by being greedy or mostly by being deluded. It's not like one's better or worse than another. There's just different ways. And it's good to know, like, who your partner is. Oh, yeah. I mean, Wynn knows. I mean, I can go both greedy and aversive, but... In terms of my relationship with Wynn, because it's somewhat situational, like what personality type we are. But in my relationship with Wynn, I'm probably more of an aversive type, she's more of a deluded type. Right? And it's just really good to know. It's like, oh yeah, that does not need to irritate me. <laughs> does it help me? Does it help her? Right? And so just to like, understand how, how our conditioning manifests. Is it uh, useful stuff to be free, free from it? So uh, maybe before our small groups, so I'll just read a, a couple paragraphs. Hopefully, many of you have read this simple, really nice, I think, article by Christina Feldman, one of the senior teachers. She, along with you know people like Jack Hornfield and Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salter, she's been one of the early IMS exam meditation teachers. She's a uh, Mostly teaches at Gaia House, which is the mothership in England, like IMS and Spirit Rock are here in the United States with this particular um, school of Buddhism. And she writes in the on the first page what the uh, teachings on dependent co-arising actually describe is a vision of life or an understanding in which we see the way everything is interconnected 
that there is nothing separate, nothing standing alone. Everything affects everything else. We are part of this system. We are part of this process of dependent origination. Causal relationships affected by everything that happen around us and in turn affecting the kind of world that we live in inwardly and outwardly. It is also important to understand that freedom is not found separate from this process. And this is important because as we see, as we become more aware and we see the web of our conditioning and how we're really uh, guilty of you know, participating in our own suffering, you can feel like this. I want to get, it's too complex, I just want to get out of it. Get me out of here. But that's called greed. So she says, it's not a question of transcending this process to find some other dimension. Freedom is found in this very process of which we are a part. And part of that process of understanding what it means to be free depends on understanding interconnectedness and using this very process, this very grist of our life for awakening. And then one more short paragraph on page three. She writes, it's also helpful to consider some of the effects of understanding the pentacle arising. One of the effects is that it helps us to understand that neither our inner world nor outer world is a series of aimless accidents. Things don't just happen. There is a combination of causes and conditions that is necessarily necessary for things to happen. This is really important in terms of our inner experience. It is not unusual to have the experience of ending up somewhere and not knowing how we got there. Like in a relationship, for example. And feeling quite powerless because of the confusion present in that situation. Understanding how things come together, how they interact, actually removes the sense of powerlessness. Or that sense of being a victim of life. Or helplessness. Because if we understand how things come together, we can also begin to understand the way out and how to find another way of being and realize that life is not random chaos. Now this could be something to bring up in the small groups that we're going to do in just a few minutes because probably all of us in our own ways, we like that poem, some of you know that poem about walking down the street, falling in the hole, you know, not knowing how we got there, thinking it's somebody else's fault. Eventually we realize I still don't know how I got here, but it's my fault. Right? So that's a positive step to say, oh yeah, this is how I'm feeling. I'm really suffering. And yeah, I could spend my time blaming actual causes and conditions that I see as external. But what's actually skillful is to pay attention to how the mind, our mind, has been participating in the falling in the hole, whatever that difficult situation. Because that's where we have some control, right? What attitude has supported me being in this hellish state, this difficult state? What wrong understanding, what attitude? It's not about judging ourselves, because when we catch what the attitude is, if we really see it with awareness and wisdom, we'll say, well, of course that attitude arose. It's not helpful. It's contributing to this experience being really hellish. 
but I can do something about that. I'm not helpless. Right? Because it arose lawfully. And interestingly, seeing it changes, seeing that the mind did that. Oh yeah. This, you know, hopefully over time in our intimate relationships or long-term friendships, where we, we begin to learn like, oh yeah, don't do that with that person. You know, don't say that, don't act that way, don't let that habit play itself out because it really makes things messy. And we get good at like avoiding playing that part with that person in that way. Because it doesn't help anybody. And this is how we shape and are shaped by everybody. This is why when we're around somebody who has some real wisdom and has learned something about kindness and patience and forgiveness and fearlessness and you know some of these wholesome qualities. Like it can be so inspiring when we see how nimble, how many holes they avoid falling into. Like something difficult happens to a good friend and they don't catastrophize, they just take care of what they need to do. But they don't amplify the suffering by some unhelpful attitude. Oh, you can kind of see, oh, I can do that. So that may be something that you share in your group, like some example from your life where you kept falling into the same hole, falling into the same hole, falling into the same hole, and then you finally realize, right, you can make a different choice. And you felt, and the nice thing to report in your three minutes sharing is like that confidence, that empowerment, like, oh, I'm not destined to keep repeating mistakes doing the same thing, getting the same results. Now, some of you are new to the Buddhist studies and haven't been in these small groups, and it's, they're really powerful. I mentioned last week that um, the expectation is you don't sneak out, you stick. And we do it the last half an hour or so uh, every other week. So we're going to divide now into groups of three. When you find your other folks, sit close so you don't have to speak so loudly. We're spreading ourselves out throughout the building. If you're going to be in one of the downstairs groups, then bring your coat down, probably it's a little cooler down there. Um, we hold what people say in confidence. And it really helps to be intimate with the experience of your body. You'll be a better listener if you're really present with your body. If you're intimate with your body, you're going to be intimate with the person who's speaking. And we give each person about three minutes even if they run out of things to think or to say, you can use some of your three minutes just to keep reflecting. What have I learned in terms of when I take things personally, I fall into holes. It's a good strategy. When I'm living from this other frame, life looks better. And how has that become an empowering, empowering insight for me in different places? Where am I not learning that? You know, where do I always take things personally? Always end up being a suffering human being. So those are the kind of things you can share. Each person gets three minutes, and then with the remaining time, you can just have an open discussion. I think I'm forgetting about the small groups, those of you that are offering. That might be it. 
So, yeah, no pressure. Thanks, yeah. So that's right. So the person really gets their three minutes. So that's why being in your body, then when they pause and are reflecting some more, you just give them really permission for the silence to continue. So that it's not an awkward thing. If the person talks for 30 seconds and then there's silence for a minute and talk a little bit more of another thing to share and then a little bit more silence. And if you're within your shot, I'll ring the bell loudly. That will cover many of you. But if you're far enough away, then somebody in the group should get out their um, cell phone for time with folks so that you have a little time for open discussion at the end. So it looks like maybe as many as 85 divided by 23. So maybe let's do 27. Let's count by 27. So remember your number. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.